Hi, welcome to another episode of Black Woman's Hour. We are here on a happy day. Is everyone happy? We should be, I don't know if we should be happy. Hmm. Basically, Derek Chauvin, who was, um, who murdered George Floyd, was found guilty yesterday uh, in America, Minneapolis, right? So I'm going to go just ask everyone how they are. Elaine, everyone knows Elaine now. Elaine, do you want to introduce yourself again? How many times have you been on our show now? Elaine's been our most featured guest. Okay, um, I don't know if I've got enough fingers yet, but I think, is it three now or four? Four, I think. Isn't this four? Four, yes. <laughs> um, so my name's Elaine Azapoku. I'm a digital marketer by day. I read lots of books. I run a couple of book clubs and I'm here because I'm just passionate about lots of things. <laughs> Thank you, Elaine. And Toyin, Agbetu, we have, uh, yes, we have a guest today, a new guest. This is your first time on our show. That's right. Well, thank you for inviting me. I feel kind of privileged because I'm not sure I'm a black woman, but um, I, I'll, I'll take the honorary title for the time being. Um, yeah, just thank you for inviting me. I suppose I'm a community educator, scholar, activist, professional big mouth, and I just love our people and just do whatever it takes for freedom, liberation, and to educate our people. That's it, really. Oh, it's, it's run by black women. That's why it's called that. But it's like an open platform, really. So you don't need to feel out of place. We've had black men on here before. I, I know. I know. But you're just running things. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Aisha, my trusty sidekick with her untrustworthy computer. How's it going? God, I hate my computer. But it's got us through many things before. So I'm going to not badmouth it right now because it will probably get me back again at a later date. <laughs> We're going to go through and just ask you all how you feel. I mean, did anyone, first of all, um, I did not watch uh, George Floyd being murdered. I never watched the recording, which I've now found out was done by a 17-year-old girl, which um, I had no idea. Um, I, I know how it was, you know, went over about nine minutes with the, the knee on the neck and stuff. And I can't watch that kind of thing anymore. I'm done seeing black trauma. And um, did anyone actually see the original tape that got the whole world sort of out on the streets? I'd, yes. I'd seen parts um, before, um, but I watched the trial, and so they did have it on quite frequently, and that's actually something I want to talk about um, on here before we even get onto the trial about... Yeah, we're going to get onto the trial next. I was just seeing who's, who yeah. watched the actual thing. Aisha, you said you watched it. Yeah, um, inadvertently, um, as, per, as often happens on Twitter, it just kind of ended up on my feed and um and it wasn't the whole thing obviously because I don't know how that's possible but um it was I think um some of the end of it uh the end of his life let's just say the, the end of someone's life um and uh it's, it's really haunting and actually I, I watched 13th with my son who's not nine yet but sometimes <laughs> viewing is essential is it you know but um I I didn't realize that what happens at the end is just a stream of all the videos and and I just told her I just had to row and just cover your eyes and it was a bit you know the end of Madame Butterfly I just wept solidly because this is traumatic absolutely traumatic you know you can't you can't just watch these things and come I mean maybe some people can but we I don't think can watch these mm. things and remain unaffected yeah and so did everyone watch the verdict come in Yes. Yeah. I switched off from it, to be honest. Um, Elaine, you said you watched the whole trial. T Toyin, did you watch the trial as well? 
I watched parts of the trial. So I would be coming in every night and doing catch-ups as it was live. And exactly what Elaine was saying, there were they were showing the footage as well. And even though they were showing different cameras and different sources, it gets to a point where it's too traumatic. So mm. you kind of like have to switch off. But there's a part of me, I mean, in the same way that I just saw, I, I got it through one of these social media platforms. There was a truncation, kind of like condensing what happened. And so before I knew it, I'd seen it. And, I, you know, I kind of avoided and I tried to avoid the worst excesses of it. But in my role, kind of like doing community education, unfortunately, I kind of have to know the facts because I have to deal and rebut the accusations that go the other way. And I, there's just no other way of doing it. And, and it, so, so basically it feels like a piece of self-harm. Mm-hmm. I'm actually hurting myself by watching it. But it's part, it's part, I don't want to say part of my job, but it's part of my responsibilities. Yeah, I kind of feel that that's how I feel now. It's like self-harm at this point, and that's why I don't watch it. Elaine, you're itching to get into the trial. So, no, no, it wasn't about the trial. It was about the um, commodification of bodies in this way, because we have seen so many black bodies killed in America because people have recorded them. That's... It's not fine that they've been murdered. It's fine that it's been caught on camera because that does in some, well, in this one instance, has aided in the prosecution and um, him being found guilty. However, I can't believe that in this world, there are not any people of any other races being killed by the police in this manner. But you would never, ever, watch a breakfast television program in the morning and be subjected to seeing a, a, um, anybody of any other race being murdered. So you wake up in the morning, you're not, you might, you're minding your own business. You're getting your kids ready for school. You're getting ready to go to work. And then they switch over to the news and there's a black body, whether it's been shot, whether they've been knelt on. Um, I've seen so many of them, that I've even, even in this country, the, the, the young man who got killed in the, um, shop in Hackney. That's on news quite a lot. But if you, I, I need somebody to tell me of one white Asian, regardless of wherever you are in the Asian diaspora body that you have seen brutalized, killed on TV. That's been shown on breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then after the news, just in case. We were discussing it yesterday um, after the verdict and people from America were of the view that black African-Americans were of the view that it was a good thing because it keeps it top of mind to show us that we've been, this is what's happened in the same way that Emmett Till's mum allowed the casket to be opened. But maybe because we are so desensitised, no, we are so protected in the UK, if they, they would not show a dog or a cat being killed because people would up with they would call the Ofcom they would call points of view but with this it was like entertainment it was like a snuff movie it was it was, it was just yeah, yeah. sorry but that's, that's why I said I had to get it out Aisha I can see you're just nodding along there yeah no I was also just um that it's so funny you came around to snuff movie Elaine uh, I was thinking that I was thinking I remember at school when people would talk about them, so-and-so's brother's got this video, da, 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 da. and we didn't see murders. We didn't see people be murdered like we continue to see only black people. And I was thinking there must be footage of people like that poor student, that white guy, Jack, 
um, what's his name that got murdered in London. Um, mm -hmm. There must be there must be footage because, <laughs> as you said, these uh, people of other races get murdered too. And the thing is, I can understand why African Americans think that it might be a good thing that these things are are publicized but I have a bit of a problem because I think it's all kind of it's only one way isn't it there's there's always going to be an element on the other side that actually means that it's it's um it normalizes it so it's yeah. normal it's how horrendous is it how horrendous is it it's so normal that just as the news that this guy was going down came out what was the other piece of news we got a fifth year old girl who called the police while she was defending herself got shot four times yeah. and that's how normal it is you know and I think that once once we got to that stage I don't know I, I feel like it doesn't have you know we've had the, the um, starving children in countries in Africa it's all tied up to the same thing us we're all back to Sarah Barchi we're back to you know pygmies and museums there's literally we've always been our bodies have always been subject to and a free-for-all essentially for whatever anyone wants to show them as they're, they're not we don't have bodily autonomy mm. yeah absolutely I mean you do see um on the news like in places like Darfur uh places you know um in Rwanda they'll just show black bodies piled up basically and it is a good point because every time people are talking about black people murdered by the police in the U.S it's always like white people get murdered as well by the police. The police kill this person. But actually, till Elaine said it, I've only realised, I've just realised that we had, I've never seen it. I've never seen a South Asian person. I've never seen an East Asian person or a white person murdered by the police in America. And it's just repeated and repeated and repeated. Toy and you're saying? No, I, I mean, there's a couple of issues here that we've got to unpack a little bit. I mean, there was a case of Ian Tomlinson Mm -hmm. and Ian Thompson was a European male and what happens is that there's there's two issues here there's first there's this class issue so what class of person is it that's being killed and are they a troublemaker or perceived as a troublemaker are they activists do they deserve it no one says those words but that's kind of like what's implied in it so you know we think about Jean-Charles Domenez you know we didn't see that but we was the, the, the whole news for that day, every channel was seized while he was being murdered by the police because he was supposed to have been a terrorist. But then what happens, and I think this is what the three of you touched on really well, is that this escalates when it comes to the African body. And that's part of what the work I do with Legali when we challenge misrepresentation of African people, because we are characterized and our pain and our suffering is normalized. It is made into a commodity. It's made into something that you can consume. And the danger with it is that it becomes something so normalized that it starts to desensitize people towards it. And so if you are not African and you don't have any affinity to us as a people, then it becomes entertainment. It's just another thing. It's an extension of, of a rap video. It's an extension of your favorite Game of Thrones episode. It's just something to fill in the gaps between programs. But for us, it's a traumatic knife. It just stabs us in our face. We're about to go to school and drop our children off or go to work or do something. And it hits us. But then there's the other side of the coin, which we, we don't like to talk about, but we have to. Is it useful? Does it help us? And we know since Rodney King's videoing, if we hadn't had that on tape, then we would not have known what took in place. And it's the same thing years later with George Floyd. You've got to remember in, in the UK, if you think about uh, Colin Roach, for example, in 1983, the police can actually say that he shot himself with a shotgun in the face and then have an inquiry 
and then say that, you know, he did it. It was suicide. And we know as a community, it's complete nonsense. Rashawn Charles, the same situation. People forget the press statement that came out. But what happened, the only reason why we knew that was a lie was because the shopkeeper kept some footage behind because he knew Rashawn and he said he was a polite boy and he leaked it to us. So we got to be honest about it and say, you know what, even though some of us need to take a break from watching it, I mean, I deliberately don't share them. I mean, but I do watch them if they come up, if I have to, and I only watch the, the critical points if I have to. We had to recognize that we need that awareness. And more so than that, we have to recognize that we're only focusing on those that are dying. Mm. And this is the thing that angers me the most because we're not dealing with, it's like when war happens and you hear about the soldiers that die, but you don't hear about the ones who are amputated. Every single day, even as we're talking now, one of our children is being stopped and searched. Another one's just been handcuffed. Another one's been pushed on the floor. Another one's been assaulted continuously, but no one's recording it. So we don't know about it. So those officers are getting away with it. And so do I want that recorded? Well, I don't, I need it recorded. I mean, I know they've got their little cameras now and they're supposed to be recording it. I want it recorded, not so that I can watch it, but so we can catch them out and we can hold them to account. And so that's the balance. Maybe having people who can on rotation check them before they come out to us in its entirety. People that we can trust. You can say, you don't need to watch this, but let me tell you, this is guilty. I think that's how we had to think about it. I mean, I agree. And I was sort of focusing on America at that point, And we've sort of put Britain in because they, they are two very different animals, aren't they? In terms of what they show and, and, you know, Ian Tomlinson, I do remember that footage of him falling down all the time. Um, and there have been like Blair Peach, his, his murder at the, the riots was quite well documented as well. Aisha, you were putting your hand up to it was just a, a, to come back to what Tyne was saying, because I, I agree. I think the reason that I get stuck, and I'd be really interested to hear what you think about it, is that we've had footage and a load of officers got off. You know, one of the things that people were saying was that we're in a situation now where we're wondering, we're nervous. Let's be honest, I was pessimistic. I don't know about the rest of you. I was pessimistic about the outcome of the trial, even though it had been recorded in high definition video cameras, as, as many of the other murders of the police. And so, I mean, there's, you, you know, what do you feel like about that? Because I think sometimes for what we're doing it, we're suffering for what? It's not even, you know, it's not even getting us what we need at the end of it, which is, oh, look, it's evidence. Great. Of course, they're going to go down. You know, I, I wonder what you think of, like about that and whether maybe after this it might change. Can, can I answer that? I mean, I, I, I feel the same way. And, I, and that same thing, having that footage and not being sure that it's going to get the right verdict. That says a lot about the state of the universe and the world that we're living in. But I think it's always better to have the evidence than not to, because there's an African proverb, the passage of time does not lessen the crime. And it's the same thing like enslavement. We don't have high definition footage of what they did to our ancestors, but trust me, justice will come. It might take time. It might not even be on our lifetime. We keep incrementally making those changes. It's the same thing like with Rashawn Charles. The, the inquest might have said that, you know, he, you know, the police officer was innocent. Colin Roach, they might say the same thing. Mark Duggan they might say the same thing. But as long as we are alive and we carry that torch and we have that burning sense of injustice, what happens culturally is that we pass it forward. So if you think about language, for example, when we talk about going to work, 
and I don't know about yourself, but I often use a type like, you know, off to the plantation. We're using that language to remind ourselves that there's some unfinished business and we're pushing it forward and we will continue to push it forward. And it's much easier to do that when we have evidence. Like sometimes with enslavement, the evidence we have are written by the barbaric slavers themselves. At least in this situation, we have young people, we have people from all different backgrounds filming and saying, this is wrong, that's why I'm filming it. And that in itself is compelling. Even if 12 jurors actually came back and said he was not guilty, would, would that mean that any of you believed that he was not guilty? I don't think so. The same way that if you're a white supremacist or a redneck, you're listening to that verdict and you're still thinking, I think I saw like a, a tweet this morning that burst me up about how they've got the, 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 the George uh, Colvin is innocent, Fred. You know what I mean? And nothing, no matter how much evidence, you're not going to change their mind. So you can't be bothered about what they're thinking on that level. It's for us to actually say we need justice. And so you're right, Aisha, you're so, you're so on it. You know what I mean? We've been showing it, we've been doing it, but at least right now, We've got more evidence, more evidence. And I'm not really concerned about the system itself. I mean, I am. That's other work. But I'm more concerned about us making sure that we know our responsibilities to make sure that we keep pushing the forward and, and don't forget those in the past. Nope. Nobody who's passed away on my watch, I'm not forgetting any of them. And I'll pass it on. I'll write it. I'll tweet it. I'll write poems. I'll do, I'll do whatever I can to make sure the next generation says, you know what? And that's how we do it. And I think that's what we need to teach each other. I think that's a really good lesson. And Nelson Mandela has said it himself um, when he was working with Oliver Tambo and they were working as lawyers um, down in the, on the townships. And they were taking all these cases to court. And they were like, how did you feel taking these cases to court? And you were losing pretty much all of them. He said it was just a record. We knew we were walking in there. We knew it was an apartheid system. We knew the system was against us. We knew that they were going to get not guilty. But now you go back and you can read the facts of the case and you could go, hold on a second. <laughs> that man stole something from all the way down there from a white woman when he was actually over there and he still got found guilty. So, yeah, I think it is really important to document the evidence. I mean, I don't know for you guys. I mean, I think I've had a pretty traumatic last couple of years anyway. So mm -hmm. I don't watch this. Like I'm zeroed it out. And I have a young child as well who's shaking my camera. And, uh, <laughs> Hi, Mimi. <laughs> the right mood. And uh, yeah, so I don't have it around. Do you know what I mean? I'm really careful. I mean, there was even something on CBeebies that was about um, Rosa Parks. And I just thought, hold on a second, because the messages that were beaming through it was, oh, you know, back then they thought black people were inferior to white people, but it was the way it was framed. And I was like, I want to turn that off, thank you very much. I don't even want her to hear it. Like, I just want her to stay innocent for as long as I can yeah. and not, you know, because that's a hard thing to deal with. It's things that we've all had to deal with as adults growing up that there are people out there who hate us for our skin colour. They hate us for existing. They hate us for breathing. They hate us for being free. You know, so I think it's really important for us to, to give our kids that bit of confidence first mm -hmm. um, before it's going to come crashing down. We all know it's going to come crashing down. I think for most black boys, it'd be interesting to ask you, Toyin, um, when, where did you grow up? In London? Here, London, Hackney. I was born in the UK. When was the first time you were called the N-word? Oh, gosh. I mean, that would be... When I was a carefree musician, I must have been maybe 15, 16. That's what I remember. I mean, I, 
I know I had incidents at school, but I can't say exactly, I can't remember the exact date, but I remember the time it was the most harmful was when I was just walking down the road and that happened. In fact, I'll tell you what, I tell you the most harmful situation actually is my father. My father's a very proud African and very quiet, humble, not like me, I'm a big mouth, but he was very, you know, if there was an argument, he comes into the room and he just calms it down. And I remember we used to go to Brighton every year. We had, he had a friend who had a house down there and we used to go to Brighton and just live by the sea. She had a house and it was great and it was cool. And I remember going down there one year and we was on the bus and, you know, me, my sister, my father, and he just said, get down. I was like, huh? So get and he pulled us down, you know, and so we had to go, go under the chairs. And I'm like, what's going on? And I looked at my dad and got me. My dad was like, for me, the most powerfulest man in the universe. And he was frightened. And I was kind of like, what's going on? Do you know what I mean? And then so, you know, we went on the bus and then afterwards he got us back up and then we spent the rest of the holiday. But that always bugged me. What was going on? And it was only I found out later on when I got back to London that there would be a massive NF march. And the whole place had been swarming with rednecks and white supremacists. And that, that feeling he had to protect his children, I get it. Because I remember, must have been around when my, my wife was pregnant with my, 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 my daughter. And that's, so what's that going to be? That's around 19 years ago. And we was driving through, I think it's close to Stonehenge. It was a beautiful drive, Devon, that was it. I was driving through Devon. I had a convertible back in those days. And, and it was just a beautiful country. And... I remember we came into, we got into the, the town. It must have been around a bit late, around six, seven o'clock. And everyone was out on the streets drinking and, 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 and kind of leery. And something went into my head and it said to me, Toyin, if they attack us, I cannot protect my, my wife. I can't protect my unborn child. There's so many of them. And, so, and so I know I talk, you asked about the N word. But I'm saying that level of violence is not just doesn't just come from using the N word. It's from the attitude, the lyrics, the way they were looking at us. We had a bad experience, unfortunately, but I won't go into that. So it's throughout my whole life, from childhood, from being with my father to becoming a young adult, you know, having my family. It's been a constant background of understanding that unless I'm in a space like Hackney or Brixton or somewhere where there's enough of us that if there's trouble, some people are going to come to defend me. It's, it's bad. Oh, yeah. The reason I asked about the N-word, because I was just talking about children and losing their innocence and stuff. And just a pattern that I, I kind of noticed. And um, we covered this sort of on our previous show with uh, Sean Sobers and Adam Cooper. And we um, had basically talked about black boys being all cute or cool or whatever they want to describe them as until they turn to the age of about 10. And suddenly they become the threat. And what I've noticed is speaking to black men over the years um, the first time they were encountered that word tended to be around that age. And um, they all had said it had been from actually a white school friend. So I was just wondering, I was just trying to pick up on the pattern. The school they- thing is a big thing, but I, yeah. I, home, I partly home educated my children. So I knew that would happen. So what we did was we decided as a family that at primary school, we're going to have half the time at school and half the time at home. And I don't have any, any music. I, I'm, a, I'm a music lover, but anything with the N word is not in my home. It's as simple as that. And so it was kind of like inoculating them. So by the time they went to secondary school, when people were playing it in music, it was other students debating why they can't use it. My children knew straight off who they were, what they would accept, what they wouldn't. But you're right. That's what happened. It starts at primary school. And as parents, you know, you've got this, you, what you're doing is so true. You, you're trying to protect their innocence. That's that's crucial because 
our childhood, we only have it once. And once it's gone, it's gone. So we have to protect it. But we have to say to ourselves, we are living in a hostile space. And because they're living in a hostile space, we have to also give them little cultural primers, just little things just to help them defend themselves. So they know how to debate and defend themselves if things come against them. So it's, 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 it's a balance. Yeah, speaking about that childhood, like, you know, the black childhood is a lot shorter, you know. Yeah. There's red as adults, uh, you know, black girls are red as young women. And, you know, it's lots of stuff about the shapes of our bodies and the boys are aggressive and this and that and the other. Um, Elaine, do, do you want to say something? I was going to say that I was trying to think. I don't think if um, specifically that I've ever been called the N-word um, in a derogatory way it's rarer um, for women i think um yeah and but i have definitely been made very aware that my blackness is a problem um and i'm trying to think like even at, i remember like one time at school um i remember getting kicked out of geography um because somebody else in the class had sh- shouted out my nan lives in that house now it was a house in Northwest London. My nan has never left, neither of them had ever left the plane. So I know that it wasn't me. My teacher threw me out of the class. Right. And I was like, it wasn't me. Why are you always arguing? I got kicked out of the class. I was like, <laughs> because it clearly wasn't me. Why would my grandma live in a house in East Coast? Doesn't make any sense. And, um, and that there were certain teachers, like I was always a good student at school and, um, I always say to people that you're speaking to basically 50% of the black people in my year, as in both parents are black. Um, I was always a good student. I didn't experience some of the things that other people experienced um, because at my school, they were tended to turn more towards the South Asians rather than the black person. Yeah. I guess as a black person, I had the coolness of being black and probably being, you know, a bad man when I'm five foot four and a half and I don't know when I stopped growing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, with, with black girls and black women, I always joke and say the reason I keep all my receipts is because I'm a black woman. People have been lying about me since I was about three. Um, so I'm pretty used to it. <laughs> it's just, you just keep the receipts, you keep it moving. But I do think, like, Elaine, when we sort of spoke before the show and what we were going to talk about, we kind of were looking for black men to come onto the show. So thank you, Toyin, because we were going to speak about police brutality. And we do think, well, not we do think, we know for a fact that it, it, uh, the way it manifests itself in the black community is completely different towards black men than it is towards black women. I'm not saying there haven't been occasions where that has been different or a black woman has been, you know, there have been. We know that. But for the most part, I mean, Stop and Search Legal Project, which I did a lot of work with in its inception and going into schools and speaking to them, it, you weren't hearing real stories from black girls talked about, you know, stop being stopped and searched and basically thrown against walls, throw, you know, pinned down, their faces pushed into the dirt. I mean, Toyin, you, uh, I'm not uh, saying about your age or anything like that, but like, um, so, you know, all the sus laws, demos and stuff like that back in the day I mean were you coming of age when that stuff happened yeah I mean I I, I mean I'm in my 50s so I mean yeah 
I, I do remember that era, but I wasn't pretty much like Elaine in, in many ways. I, you know, I was very studious. I was involved in music. And so I was getting stopped and searched because I was traveling up and down the motorway doing PAs and, and organizing bands and stuff like that. It was a slightly different thing. And to be honest with you, I wasn't as conscientious. I wasn't as aware of what was happening uh, across the whole of London because I, I lived in Hackney. And even though we did have abuse in Hackney, um, it wasn't until later I became more involved in those kind of concerns. So it, it's really strange because I've always felt like it, uh, the way I put it and the way in my childhood, the way I saw it, I saw the Rusta community as our Black Panther movement. So they're the ones who kept us safe. We had a, we had a place called Sandringham Road, which was known as the front line. And so if we were being chased by Teddy boys, we can go down Sandringham Road and they'd stop. The police wouldn't go down there. They would stop. And then, you know, eventually they put a police station on Sandringham Road and they killed the whole thing. They got rid of blues parties, which was another space where we used to meet and that was safety. So I do remember that era and stop search, but I personally wasn't as affected by it for those same reasons. I was affected for, for a slightly different reason because I was a little bit younger. I mean, the generation that really got it bad are probably in their 60s. And they're the ones who really, really felt like the New Cross fire, you know, the, the, the Black People's Day of Action. That generation was just, just they're, they're my elders. And they're yeah. the ones that I, I bow down to. And they're the ones who kind of like had to deal with the brunt of that. I came with the tail end of that. And again, I just carried up the baton. And just kept it moving. That's 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 my role in that. Yeah. Did you catch a documentary, The Black Power, The Rise and Fall, that was on a couple of weeks back? Well, not. I did. I, I, the BBC one you're talking about. I yeah. did. I, you know, I, I I can't lie. So I mean, I one thing I don't do wrong and strong. So if anyone asks me a question, if you don't want to know the truth, don't ask. Um, it was useful, but it had a lot of time spent on Michael X. And my collects, for anyone who's involved in the community activism, knows that that's a, that's a footnote. That should not have been the main part of our story. That wasn't the part, main part of our story. What, what, what The Mangrove uh, film, now that's part of our story. That's a big part. But the whole thing about Michael X and his corruption, nobody from my generation and before would be bigging up Michael X. So why on the, on the mainstream TV are you having a whole section about Michael, Michael X and his corruption destroying the whole movement? And in the last five minutes is dealing with where we are now. It was, it's a bit nonsensical. So I'm glad that we're having this discussion, but that, that documentary wasn't made for us. It, it, was, it was part of the commodification of our struggle. And so even though it's done with the best intentions, I struggle with watching those kind of things. And you kind of watch it hopeful, just kind of like with a verdict. But even when it finishes, you're kind of like, nothing's really changed. We just had, I won't say a good day, but we just had a, a positive result. But nothing has really ultimately changed. And that documentary, I won't be showing it to my children. I had to vet what I show my children now. So I've seen the 13th, they've seen the 13th, but I have to watch it first with my wife. And then we think, can they handle it? Yeah, no, and and that's it. Yeah, I mean, I personally enjoyed the documentary. I I liked it, but I did have that feeling of hopelessness, and we wrote up quite a bit about it. And one of the things we did say is like, what has really changed? And actually, at some points watching that documentary, I was thinking, have we come backwards? But I didn't really put it on the documentary. I just put it on the fact of where we are today, because I mean, it's just. It just points. I mean, we've got a really openly hostile government. We have an openly hostile um, 
dare I say, unbalanced uh, Home Secretary, because it's just not, I'm sorry, it's not reasonable. So we do say every week, we really do want to stop talking about her on this, but every week she does something else and it's just such aggression and it's so nasty and it's just, you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm sort of, not saying that this hasn't happened before because we've had guests on who've been sort of around that kind of era or known about the law and whatever and I've said have we ever had such a vile home secretary in our entire time and I don't know if it's just the 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 way I'm not on a Christmas card list I I don't think I'm gonna make it but it's just you, you have to wonder and it almost for me seems more hopeless because of technology. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, you think you've got all this uh, Twitter and you've got this and you've got that, and you can organize, you can, but you can be traced more. Like you were saying, you, I mean, I know Sandringham Road. I remember seeing a documentary that was actually um, filmed, like oh, they were just filming the front line. I had an ex who was very obsessed with it. He was idolized that whole thing. He's from Tolston and he was just, we were watching this thing and there was actually a policeman and they just grabbed him. Like he'd come down there, they grabbed him, they took his hat off. It was all very funny, but it was just like, it was like that could not happen today. I mean, look at what happened in the riots and it's like digital cameras, facial recognition and all this kind of stuff, which we know doesn't favor us. So I did feel the documentary in ways felt hopeless, but I kind of felt it felt real. Aisha, you'd had your hand up. Um, I was just gonna ask, uh, it was kind of tied into what we've been talking about, how did everybody feel after, and it ties into obviously we talking about how you felt after watching the sort of the Black Power documentary, how did everyone feel yesterday when the verdict came in? Because obviously we were saying that we didn't hold up much hope, but you know, did you feel, were you sad? Were you happy? Were you, you know, I'm curious because I, I felt, felt some I ways. Felt cautious. I felt cautious. I felt like, First of all, I didn't want to see it because I was like dealing with a lot of stuff yesterday and I was like, I, I don't even want to see it. I had a friend go, oh, it's, I said, I don't, I just told you, don't talk to me about it. I don't want to hear it. And when I hear it, I'm going to be scrolling past it. But then obviously you go on Twitter and everyone's like, yes, yes, yes. But do you know what I thought? This is, I know this sounds awful. I felt like every now and then we're thrown a crumb and I felt like they'll say, well, if the system doesn't work, how come Derek Chauvin got convicted? If the system doesn't work, how come he went to trial? No, you don't protest, you don't riot, you don't do that because this shows the system works. And I'm sorry, I didn't- Follow the law. Yeah, and you know, you saw the LA Raiders put out a tweet going, I can breathe. Who? Who can breathe? Because he's- The most Eric Eric Garner, who, who that whole movement, I can't breathe came from, isn't breathing. Are you guys insane? And it almost felt like everyone was saying, oh, it's all right now. Oh, it's better now. And I just think almost it seems like if we're given something, like it's one step forward, two steps back, two steps back to quote Paul Abdul, whoever said it first. But it really is. I really felt like, oh, gosh, that's happened. What's going to happen to us now? And I really did. Elaine, how did you feel? So um, I was really apprehensive because I watched too many American procedural dramas to think, okay, they've got a unanimous verdict. That's, and I was like, hopeful, that means that he's guilty. It must, it means it's guilty. It means that they weren't swayed. But that might be due to the constant replay of the video. And the, the defence was actually quite shocking as well. 
And when they said guilty the first time, I started crying. I was like, why am I crying? And it was like a massive sense of relief. And I guess the relief is for his family because this is the best justice that they could have hoped for. Um, From my understanding, this is the first time in history that a police officer has been found guilty of murdering a black person in America. Um, I'm not, I wasn't here for the memes that started taking place with uh, Chauvin on Twitter. It's because it's, it's memes to me are kind of like, you use them as a humorous kind of thing. And ultimately somebody, sorry, not somebody, George Floyd was murdered. Yeah. Um, and the way that he was murdered, I think is the reason why Chauvin was found guilty. I believe that if he had been shot in the line of duty, Chauvin would be walking free right now. But there's, when you've got, if if we take out the um, civilians who were on the street saying, stop it, you also had the first responders, as in the paramedics of a call, to say, bruv, allow it, man, just stop it. It's enough. Plus, the guy, um, plus George Floyd was already handcuffed. So, what was going through your mind? And I, when I've been doing some of my reading today, as part of their training, because that knee on the neck was is part of their training, but they were warned that he can cause asphyxiation. So, there's no reason for you to be. Chauvin is older than me. I don't know if I can kneel down for for longer than two minutes or whatever. Eight minutes is eight minutes, 46 seconds is a very long time. Yeah. It's a very long time. I used to go to mass. Prayers don't last that long. Yeah. So it's a very... If you're in a Pentecostal church, honey. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> so now what's going to happen? We're holding our breaths for the sentencing. Um, we know what... And I guess, thankfully... He is actually in America because obviously he's got the three different charges. If it's concurrent or if it's consecutive, it could be he could be gone for a very long time. And so that was it was a sense of relief. Elaine could tell himself. And then I saw Nancy Pelosi's Nancy Pelosi made a statement. Um, and for those who don't know who Nancy Pelosi is, she is the leader of the House of Representatives. So she's like the third most powerful Democrat in the United States. I gave her a bly when George George Floyd was murdered and they were all donning the Kente stars last year. I don't know when Kente became whatever it did, but I'm not supposed to be sarcastic, so let me stop. She said- Please, go ahead. George Floyd sacrificed his life. Sacrifice makes it seem like he was a willing participant in his murder. And he really wasn't. If he was willing, he wouldn't have said, I can't breathe. So why would you use that, that terminology? It's great that the, it's, it's great. It's, it's a potentially a turning point in Minneapolis because the, the police need to be reformed definitely in that state because the other murder that they had the other day with the guy when he was driving the, um, the young one. So that was that one? Yes. And when, when, they, when, when, the, when the police officer was doing um, the training. So it, from a root, as they will say here in the UK, they need to have a root and branch reform. 
And so if the police, if the heads of the police and whoever else went on the trial was like saying they thought it was excessive, um, there is some hope. But you're right, um, they've had one conviction since Africans were taken to America over 400 years ago. I need to check if it's the first conviction for anybody, um, any murder of anybody before, um, as Toyin said, you need to be armed with your own defence. But from what I understand, it's the first conviction of a police officer for murdering a black person. Yeah. And Toyin, how did you feel when you heard the verdict? It, that was a, a deep response, Elaine, as well. Thank you. Um, I, we watched it with my son. So, um, you know, he, his mum was doing his hair and we just decided, you know, I called the family the verdict and said, look, you know. And um, there was a sense, yeah, relief is one thing, kind of like, you know, because like Ava, you don't want to bring negativity into your world on purpose. And there was always that potential just for the whole week to be mashed up by a few seconds of a couple of sentences saying not guilty and you know and you had to be cautious you had to protect yourself so there was that element and was frightened about that and I, I would say I was frightened I'm not a man who frightens very easily and so when the words came out there was a the first thing well that's right that's what it should be and then there was a kind of like and what's next and then you realize there isn't anything next they're, they're, you know they're gonna yeah, they're gonna do sentencing and there might be some good points some bad points but then there's another three three police officers that need to be prosecuted i think that's going to happen in august why can't that happen straight away you know what i mean it's just going to be longed out until it fades away from people's memory and and like you just said it's uh, from when you, you know you can say that we're giving you george and we're giving you not george we're giving you uh, Derek shelvin so be happy with that and that's how the system works. The system, it, 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 you know, it continues to kind of like, it makes sacrifices on purpose. And I know Pelosi was kind of like trying to do that liberal thing. She was trying to do the right thing. But it just, it, she's person, her statement exposes the mindset of how our deaths are entertainment. How our, it's, a, it's just something you consume. You don't even get it. You're just saying the things that you think you need to say because you're a politician. And that was quite, painful that was quite harmful and there's going to be a lot more of that taking place but either you know the, the whole thing with with, with the cabinet and uh, the, the the home secretary and stuff like that i i feel that but there's also a reminder for me that perhaps we're more angry in that position because this cabinet is probably the most diverse it has ever been in the history of the uk and yet we have done I, mean, I don't use you know coconut and toms and what kind of language and stuff like that i think it but i try not to use it because you know i try to be polite but there's there's this whole mindset in there that says that even when we are in those systems of power it's like our people and people who are discriminated against because of those systems are still capable of letting us down and so i always think to myself it's not really about what they're doing and what they're going to do it's about what we're going to allow to do. And that's why with the film and with the documentary, why I had that same take. But when it first started off, it was very romantic. And it was a reminder that when we own the agenda, when we say that this is what we're going to do, then we make change happen. But the moment we wait on someone else to do it, we lose control. And that keeps happening. We keep waiting for other people to do our business. <laughs> and that can't run. We have that power. 
back in the day, without the internet, without the Twitter and all those kind of tools and stuff like that, we had to meet up. And the good thing about meeting up in person is that it's deliberate. If you're going to kind of like do yourself up and, you know, get everything ready and go out and travel somewhere, you believe when you get there, you're going to do work. <laughs> you, know I mean? you ain't leaving your house just to kind of like floss. And, you know, of course, you know, sometimes it's a dating thing and you just want to meet other people are conscious and that kind of stuff. But generally you're meeting to do work. And what's happening by making it so easy with the technology, we raise awareness quick, which is great. But do we work or do we think that liking is work? Do we think retweeting is work? And I'm not diminishing the importance of raising awareness because a lot of people who would otherwise not know and not get engaged come through that. But I, I worry that activism, the way we do our community work has changed for the worse. And not just because of technology, but because we're not using it right, because we don't actually believe that we have the power to make those changes. And we, we have the power, <laughs> trust me on that. You know, we, we, we can change things. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm not sure about that because I, I think because we do have the power is why we are seeing a, a cabinet, a right-wing cabinet that is that diverse. It's almost like, and I brought this up a couple of times in the show, when they were talking about teaching black history in schools and they had the Labour MPs on one side and they had the uh, Tory MPs. They were all MPs of colour apart from Jeremy Corbyn, I think maybe John McDonnell. And they were all, so the Labour MPs, Dawn Butler was saying well, how important it was. And then you had Kemi Badenoch on the other side going, oh no. Then you had Bim from the Toys going, hey, I went to Eton. I'm so glad there's always allowed to come to Eton. Black people should be in this business. And you're like, mate, there was like two of you. So you and Quasi, so what are you talking about? But it's like, you know what I mean? I'm joking around, but I think it's because we do have that power. That's why you're seeing the Calvin Robinsons. You're seeing the... Uh, all of these young people who are now coming up and it's almost like you know I did a uh, I wrote a piece about it and I had sort of um, asked people for comments and I had anonymous comments and I did have a black guy going well I just decided you know I want to be on the winning side now you know what's the point there's no point fighting it and stuff so I do think that the division that has been you know obviously divide and conquer has always been there there's always been house slaves there's always been overseers, there's always been that kind of thing throughout time. But I think now there really does seem to have been a conscious decision to go back to that, to break up communities and to show young black people, hey, you know, if you're in it for yourself, you can get this far, you can be in the cabinet, you can be, so I, I don't know if it's, um, I don't know, does anyone else agree with me? I don't know if it's like we don't know what our power is. I think it's just, I always say now, if there's gonna be a revolution, I don't think it's gonna be along color lines. I think they've just got too many of us. Do you know what I mean? I <laughs> you, know. you know when you see the things that sort of runaway slaves and they're just running and they just catch some of them by the feet and stuff. It's like, oh my God, like they've just got too many of us. And so now I think we might have to sort of open it up a little bit because sometimes I do hear people who are who are not black who are have got better ideas than Kemi. You know what I mean? I sometimes see white people going, Oh my, what's wrong with her? Was you know what I mean? I I don't know. Elaine, what do you think? Do you think that we as a community, do you think we feel like we've lost our power or? I think that um, when it comes to our power, maybe we might not realize that we actually still have it. Um, if I'm thinking about politics, I, I still, I'm of the view that you can be in 
the ruling in the Conservative Party and be a decent human being and still have empathy. However, there the people that we have been citing now and um, seem to it seems like they're trying to outdo outdo what the rest of their crew are doing. I guess it's like showing off. It's like, if I take it, uh, one of my favorite books in life is The Handmaid's Tale. And Gilead would not have been able to have um, existed if it wasn't for the commander's wives. And so it was, a, it was partly the architect, um, Serena Joy, was one of the commander's wives and she actually wrote the plan for Gilead and then her husband because she acquiesced some of her power to her husband is the one who enacted it and so I see the same thing here where <laughs> I don't know maybe maybe they might think it might be more palatable coming from these people um, who look like the changing face of what Britain is rather than the and also it shows that Britain is a meritocracy because if you can get into Eton, which is one of the most expensive schools in the country, and you look like me, um, it doesn't matter what the person's background or their family background is. What the masses will be seeing is that black people in this country who are in the main classes being working class come from this feckless families um, and, and their fathers are not around. Oh, look, but look at this one. He's exceptional. He's like yeah. Morgan Freeman. And so then, you, as in the exceptional Negro in the film, it's like Morgan Freeman's the only black person who can play God. I'm not saying that Morgan Freeman's like quasi quatting. Um, <laughs> but, but there are some, and I'm sure that even, it must be quite frustrating for those who do believe in what the, one nation Tory ideology is to see what these people are doing because I, I know people who are cons- conservative voters who are African Ghanaian to be precise who are at a loss at what's going on with this current rabble of people and um, yeah Sorry. yeah talking. I was gonna I, I agree that if you were just looking at policies and you were just a free marketeer although you know the Tories aren't even free marketeers they like to say that they're Smithsonian economist um George Osborne was always going on about how he was a Keynesian economist while you spend your way out of a recession he didn't do that so it was all bullshit quite frankly but I can see how as a black person you can or a person of color you can adhere to and believe in those principles what I don't see is how you can in a country where the Tory party have consistently been responsible for masses of racism, support them. So the, the two, to me, there's, there's a problem. You can under, an ideology is an ideology, right? You can be a Marxist, you can be a Keynesian economist, you can be a Smithsonian economist, you can be a Stalinist, a Leninist, a Trotskyite. There's, all of these are just ideologies. But when you tie them into how they're enacted, which is by political parties, then that's where the problems lie. And the political party, we're talking about the Tories, are racist. They're completely racist. They're more anti-Semitic than Labour, as the new study came yeah. out today. But we knew this. Everyone, everybody brown. Um, a lot of Jews didn't know that. I find it odd that they didn't, because obviously 
they are they are living that life, you know, in the same way I know because I'm a brown person. But I totally get your point, Elaine, that they, they can be. But I also think in order to get to where they are in a racist society, we say this a million times, they have to be worse. Like as a black person, you have to try twice as hard and work twice as hard. So they've had to work twice as hard at being a not great person and an acting terrible person. <laughs> Um, as the white people that are in the party with them, right? So Kemi Mellon, not all, there's been naming names now, not just her, some people in that party have had to work twice as hard and do things that are twice as shady and twice as awful as their white counterparts. They don't, the white counterparts don't need to do that. They don't have to prove that they're racist or horrible, because, but these black people do. They have to prove that they will do anything, that they will not be loyal to who they are, to their families, to the people that look like them, to be there. I mean, like that. Is, that is how they get there and it does kind of make it a meritocracy doesn't it because you know they're there on their merit <laughs> they work damn hard to get there. So, um, and that wasn't really even my, wasn't my main point, but I got distracted by it. <laughs> this kind of reminded me of a joke this comedian called Danny Hurst had where he talked about being bisexual. He said, being bisexual is like being a black policeman. Neither side really trusts you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's cold. Like I remember when I was in the prison service, that like the the so there was some black officers. I remember this one, I won't name him, but it was this uh, Nigerian guy, and he used to go weightlifting and stuff with the white officers. And there was this like a uh, big, you know, a group of officers who wanted to be in the tornado, the riot team, and stuff like that. And he was the black one, and he was the worst one. And then there was this other officer who got the nickname, this other black officer, the adjudicator. And he's like, every minute, I said, what's wrong with you? Every minute, like, you're nicked, you're nicked, you're nicked. And they're like, oh, he's the adjudicator. And actually, oh. uh, he, he, he found out, basically, when they came for him, they came for him. They came for him big time. They called the police into the prison for him, everything. He went through absolute hell. And I was just like, but when you were the adjudicator, you know what I mean? You didn't seem to have didn't seem to realise, do you know? It, there is that almost, you do have to be extra awful to fit into these circles. You have to kind of, yeah, Victoria. No, no, I just want to add on to that because there's so many truths being spoken. It's refreshing to hear them because, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I mean, one thing about this talented tenth theory, this idea that meritocracy exists, because meritocracy doesn't exist in Britain. We've got a monarchy, so it doesn't make any sense. How can you have a monarchy in meritocracy? But this myth of meritocracy, um, if you have unhealthy ego, because everyone has ego and you're supposed to have ego, but it's keeping it healthy so it's not so overinflated. If you have an unhealthy ego, ego then what happens is that if you, sometimes it gets challenged, right? So, you know, if, if people are saying that the party is racist, the party is actually causing harm and you only got here as an act of tokenism, your unhealthy ego will say, no, 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 no. I didn't get here for tokenism. And so you start to feel you have to prove your credential, prove your conservative, prove how blue you are, prove how racist you are. You've got to remember, it's like Kwame Kwarteng, he, 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 he colonized his bed with Amber Rudd. Amber Rudd was the person who actually constructed the Windrush uh, scandal. She was the architect of that, that, that monstrosity. How could any self-respecting African do that? You understand? So that's a level of loyalty that I don't get. I just don't get it. So something's wrong here. We talk about decolonizing, but for me, the ultimate litmus test is for, for, for a racist is whether you are prepared 
to colonize your bed with someone who's a proven racist. I'm not talking about people having relationships, you know, across ethnic lines. That's everyone's personal business. I don't have an issue with that. That's you do what you want to do. That's your business. But if you are sleeping, if you are making a family with a racist, someone who wants you dead, who wants your children dead, who wants your community dead, and they're proving it, then what's going on? And I think this is the problem with the existing Tory party. They, 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 I know it sounds harsh and I don't do personal attacks, but that was a personal attack against our families with the Windrush scandal. So I've got to just be keeping it real on that. There's a lot of people who are involved in that who didn't say anything when they should have said something and only spoke up after, I think it was Amelia Gentleman, the, the, the writer for The Guardian, exposed it. Boris, Oh, snap. Oh, it's his sister-in-law. Are you joking? No. I didn't know that. It's so funny because she's going, oh, why didn't the government do anything? It's like, why didn't you ask him over Sunday lunch? You're married to his brother. Really speaks to how, and I'm just going to be full on swear here, how fucked we are, right? Somebody who is supposed to be on the side of the absolutely dispossessed, people who are right at the sharp end of government policy is having Sunday lunch with the people making this horrendous yeah. policy. It's and, a game. And everyone's just like, well, isn't she great? And I'm like, you married a Tory. You're not on my side. You know? Yeah. You're not oh, on my side. It gets even, even if she married a Tory, like you are not we you see the fact that so many people don't know that. You know, so many people don't know yeah. that. If that was me, I'd probably be out of the family, but I'd be saying, you know, I challenged my brother-in-law, I did this, I'd be calling, I'd be trying to use my power to say, let me, you know... I'd poison his wine. Okay. <laughs> now we're getting to the part where we need to start editing, so let's leave that. But I... Uh... <laughs> you didn't have to, it was just a joke. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, and we, we we do humor very well and if you don't get that then don't listen to our that music is true. Our any event that happens in the world go to black twitter honestly true it's like that is something that we do have though really as black people we have a sense of humor a sense of artistry a sense of yeah. you know you can just make up some crazy dance and it just sweeps the world you go to black you can see the advertisers you can see newspaper um journalists will mine black twitter for information and then turn it into an article do you know it's like straight away you can see and the reason why woke which is being used as a derogatory word now and you know has been because it came from from well it came from african-american um it's african-american word in the first place Mm -hmm. and they co-opted it and a lot of things that they co-opt actually are from us you know so I do think, yes, we do have humour, okay? We joke sometimes. Satire is very powerful, and it's how we survive. You know, if, why if, if, if... have stopped it, isn't it? You know, I don't believe that, you know, they talked about coming in and removing all the left-wing comedians. You know, um, it's just, it, it, they're saying, the new director general had said he's very concerned that, you know, too many people are laughing at the Tory party. There's a reason why they've taken, trying to take that tool away is because that it is powerful, as you say, Aisha. What left-wing comedians? Name me one left-wing comedian on the BBC. One, no, no, just one. Because them lot on News Quiz or whatever, sitting there, Mitch Ben. I mean, Spoon Rising, his name I, is so... I, I just do not want They're to... They're not funny. I don't want to talk about yeah. comedians. I really, I really don't. Um, <laughs> really don't. Um, Elaine, you're just... Uh, 
I'm just listening. <laughs> Your hair looks lovely, by the way. Gorgeous. Your hair looks really cute. The whole look. Thank you. Uh, I'm envious. My hair's not quite, quite rocking it today. That people can see that I'm actually wearing clothes because yeah. angles are really like. <laughs> When Toyin, when you were talking about having your convertible, I was going to ask if you used to have an afro back in the day for the wind to blow through your afro. It was, do, you remember, do you remember Kid and Play? It was kind of like a, a high top kind of, it wasn't, it was a messy high top, but it wasn't quite an afro. Yeah. My son is obsessed with that haircut. Every time we go to the barber, he's like, taller, taller, taller. <laughs> My son had a high top for a long time and I had to show him um, house party. I was oh. like, you are not original. This is not you. <laughs> oh, this is not you. <laughs> it's all just come round and round again. I mean, so just quickly to end on, really, um, do you think that that verdict will have any bearing on British policing? I mean, we just had Adam Elliott Cooper on the last show. He's actually done, uh, he's written a book, um, which I want you all to go out, and it's called Black Resistance to British Policing. I mean, where do you think we are now? Do you think that will make any difference? Like I said, America and England are and England are quite different, but I mean, I, I worry I, actually because I've seen some policemen on Twitter, and you're like, yeah. <laughs> it's scary. I mean, I can, I can try and give an answer to that if you want. I yes, mean, I can, I, I can say that. We have to learn from our ancestors. Kwame Ture, Malcolm X spoke about this, that for as long as we think about things in nationalist terms, we think about what's happening in Britain, what's happening in America, then we're always at the mercy of the government. The moment you internationalise it, which is what's happened with George Floyd, when you internationalise it, then the pressure comes from outside. It's the reason why like the UN criticising the race report is a big thing because they have no, the government has no jurisdiction on outside parties. So I think what's happening in America is quite important because what's happening is that they are forced to transform parts of their policing. Whether they'll go far enough is another issue, but they're already talking about, uh, I won't say decriminalising, but not prosecuting for crimes like prostitution, for example. And when they start doing things like that, it ripples across to the UK, not as fast, and the pushback is harder because Britain is the belly of the beast. So it, it, it kind of knows that. And it, and it thinks it has us under their thumb. That's the other issue. It thinks Because we don't know our power. It thinks that it can do what it wants. It's got the coconuts. Oops, I shouldn't have said that. It's got the gatekeepers in place. And the gatekeepers in place make us think, yeah, they'll, they'll look after us. And we're starting to realise they're not, but that's what it thinks. But the, the key question is that we have to own the agenda. And I think that when it comes to policing, we should be saying that it's time to start looking at the cannabis issue. And I, I, don't, I, I don't do alcohol, I don't do drugs, and I know it sounds very strange, but our young people are actually arrested and harassed on the streets, and the, the, the most common charge that's used to justify that is possession of cannabis. And so we have to start thinking, okay, we need to take that away if it's not resulting in arrests and prosecutions. Because then there has to be a difference to the way that policing is done on the streets of the UK. We also then have to start looking about how do we start holding the police accountable? And I don't mean the independent police complaints or Office of Police Conduct or the PCA, whatever they make up this week. It's talking about us. I mean, I've got a book here called Policing in Hackney. This was written by the community after Colin Roach's murder. And it pulled together experts in our community to investigate the situation. It pulled together lawyers and attorneys. I mean, it did the work. Now, I'm not saying that we have justice, but Ava, you know, you said we had to document these things. 
Yeah. That's what this does. And I know that sometime in the future, if not our generation, we'll look at all the evidence in here and say, you know what, we've got the forensic... It's like before fingerprints was about. We now had the technology to actually reopen that case and re-examine it and find out if you were racist and what happened there. And we have to have that mindset. So it's accountability for the police, proper scrutiny, not, not run by the government, and then also the, the state of policing. How do we protect our children? If the police are saying, well, I suspected him of having drugs or I suspect him of having cannabis or he smelled a little like, weed or whatever, blah, blah, blah. We take that away because if that child or that person isn't then causing harm, isn't hurting someone, isn't being even prosecuted because of it, then that's waste of police time using their own metrics. It's not only harming our young people by putting them in handcuffs and doing what I call speculative searches, which means that you see someone, you say you suspect them of something, you don't know anything about them, and then you search them looking for stuff. It's a speculative crime, you know, searching. That is racial profiling through the back door. We need to done with that. You know, I mean, I'm not going to get into the debate of whether cannabis is good or not. That's, that's not really my concern. My concern is protecting our babies and the police use cannabis as a way to harm our babies. So I want it decriminalized or I want the police power to stop us because they suspect we have it to be decriminalized. That's 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 how we need to think. And the George Floyd, the changes in America will ripple here is whether we catch them and then ram it down the throat of the police over here. That's where I think we, we're not strong enough yet. We can be, but we still got that work to do. It's up here. It's a mental work that needs to be done. I agree, definitely. Elaine? So um, for me, uh, I'm not quite sure um, what the benefits will be from within the UK because at the moment, obviously, we know that in Britain, we're living in a post-racial society. We've got a commissioner of the Metropolitan Police who doesn't think the police are also institutionally racist. She also hasn't, like, in terms of, like, a lot of the things that have happened, in terms of police brutality, um, she's refuted all those claims as well. Um, and obviously we've mentioned a the, the, the murder of John Charles Menezes before, and that was underneath her watch. Yeah. I can't be sued for that. It's on record. Um. I think, like, particularly living in the borough where I live, um, I'm, I'm um, even during lockdown, where on the whole, we've seen that people aren't really supposed to be going out unless there were real reasons for it. Brent's been underneath a Section 60. It felt like, at one point, it felt like nearly every other week. And the Section 60 is where you've got to have a really justified reason for why you need to be outside. And when you because I follow um, our, our um, police service on Twitter. And when you saw the areas where they were talking about where it was, had to be overly policed, where you could be more stops and searched, it wasn't necessarily in the brighter parts of the borough. It was around the, the Wembleys, the Halsdens, the Wilsdens, rather than, say, the Kilburns. And then, obviously, next door in Harrow, because it's the same police um they harrow harrow's really bad i've walked like i've walked around here i see people going flung up on the floor and like i think that our only saving grace but obviously it didn't help george floyd is that our police don't routinely carry guns because otherwise i think he'd be like the okay corral here um 
think we need to continue to hold them to account. Um, I'm hoping, if I'm not cynical, that even the powers that be with their nonsensical tweets that they were tweeting, such as if we go back to the politics, like our prime minister said something yesterday. Um, I can't remember what position Sajid Javid said yesterday. The mirror has been shown in his face that you've condemned certain things in the past. So if if something can be brought from there, if there is some impetus and like we use our political, our political power with a small P, um, the Met does need to be held accountable. And I, the reason I say the Met is because that's the only police force that has is directly appointed by the, um, the Home Secretary. And other police forces obviously take their lead from what happens in London. But people have been killed in Wales during lockdown as well through the police. Yeah. And compared to George Floyd, how many people who are watching this programme right now actually heard about the fact that they've been deaths in custody in Cardiff? That was alarming. That boy was found with bite marks all over his body. That was scary. Really? And you've got to really be plugged in to know these things. And it's, but everybody, um, because of George Floyd, companies companies across the world decided to change their policies because obviously they're racist over there. We're really cool in this country. Everything's fine. And they did not, the fact that that, those crimes did not get a mention on the BBC, on ITV, on Sky, whatever, that to me is really alarming. And if it whether the person and, and I keep on saying this because I know that there's going to be comments that whether the person is black, white, or Asian, because you've met, we've mentioned other people who've been killed by the police, that every, every every single time that some these people who are supposed to be there to protect and serve us because they are still the police service, they should they should be held up to account and and have proper inquiries. They need to be retrained on how they're doing things. And it's not necessarily about unconscious bias, bias training, but as a police officer, you should be trained to know how to de-escalate a situation. And that's, that's the bottom line for me, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I knew about the case in, in Cardiff and I knew his first name. His name is actually, we should say his name, which is Mohammed mm-hmm. Mohammed Hussain. Awesome. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's, okay, just a quick last question. We were supposed to go, but just one last question, because I think this is really important and what you just brought up kind of highlights that. How can we know George Floyd's name? We know all this, but in Britain itself, where these things are happening. I mean, I know Rashawn Charles' case because I know um, his, well, his stepdad, um, some, I, I kind of had known him from back in the day in Dalston. And um, I spoke about it on RT. I mean, how many... How can we get the same kind of energy up for when it happens? Obviously, we all know Mark Duggan, um, you know, but I don't, I know that um, around that time, we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, around 2011, I was, um, you know, I did that Trayvon Martin demo with uh, Merlin Emmanuel, who's Smiley Culture's nephew. And so we knew about him. I knew about Roger Sylvester. I knew about Sean Rigg because Marty is an absolute shero, an absolute goddess. And she inspired me so much. Um, But how do we get those names out, those British names? Why is there a disconnect between the American names that get out? I mean, we know them all. We know Breonna Taylor. We know we know George Floyd. We know actually probably don't know them all because there's, you know, so many. But I mean, it captures why are deaths 
not capturing. And when you talk about um, Troy, and I agree with you actually to not separate it. And actually it goes back to Garveyism about like, we are one people. Um, how do we even get America to talk about our, our people? Why are Americans not talking about Rashawn Charles? We're talking about George Floyd. How can we get that connection going? And that really will be the last question, I promise. If you're going to ask me from an activist position and a scholar activist position, then the first thing we have to recognise is that our power starts with our ability to say no. It means that when media comes asking questions, and I'm talking about mainstream media answers questions about a particular situation that's happened, sometimes we just need to say no. And so what happens, we become a commodity again. And and that sounds really strange. But right now, the media sets the agenda of where our eye looks, what's interesting, what the focus is. So if someone dies and they think that person's not worthy because they were involved in low-level criminality, then it won't report on it. And, And then what happens if we don't make any noise about that, then what happens, that person and that family is left by themselves to deal with it. And they've got to campaign, they've got to fundraise, and it just moves off the, 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 the major agenda. We need to be more sophisticated in our way of thinking when it comes to our power. We have the ability to say, no, I'm not going to talk about this until you talk about that. Or if I speak to you today, I'm going to mention this. You need to understand that's what we're going to do. It, it's, it, I always come back to the position that we are the people who have got the power. The key is convincing us that we're powerless, powerful, which is why so much force is done to keep us in this position. So when it comes to America, unfortunately, it's a bit more trickier because if the mainstream media and people look at sites like The Guardian as the flag bearer for liberal journalism, if they're not talking about it, then it won't go into the liberal uh, sphere in America. I mean, it won't bubble up. And so... the, the longer picture, you speak about Garvey, is us actually institutionalising our own media networks. It means having a united voice or a few united voices that when we hear of a crime happening in our community, that we amplify it, that we don't wait for anyone on BBC. We don't wait for their validation to say it's important. We do that work. But we know that's a difficult challenge. We know with the media, you know, with the resources and all the noise that happens everywhere else, people get distracted and, and the infighting in the community. But it doesn't mean that we can't say what is important to us and make sure that bubbles in our own space. There's a really good activist saying, and I'll close on this. It's think global, act local. The technology has given us the space to talk about issues happening all over the world. And that's good that we have that awareness. But it means absolutely nothing if we can't affect change in the spaces that we're at. So we have to act local, every single one of us. I have to act in Hackney. I need to know what's going on around the whole world. I need to know what's going on in London, Birmingham, and Manchester. I need to send tweets and whatever to solidarity with everyone all over the place. But when it comes down to action, if someone dies in my manner, then what happens is that I have to be part of that movement to blow it up, to make sure everyone's aware of it. And we share that with everyone else. We think global, but act local. The trick that's been done to us is that we now think you know what I mean? Local, but act global. We send these tweets and we're, and we're just achieving nothing because I can't affect what's happening in Russia. I can't affect what's happening in Pakistan. I can't affect what's happening in Pakistan or India with the COVID virus or s- s- South Africa. Or we, we can't. We don't have that resources, but we can affect what's happening in our local spaces, in our neighbourhoods, in the councils here, in the police forces, in our boroughs. And that's where we have to start the work. I can't think of a better way to end than think global, act local. I think that's just absolutely perfect. Thank you, Toyin. Um, have you guys got another 10 minutes, 15 minutes to just do Aisha's little after show? Yeah, of course. Excellent. So we're going to say goodbye to our audience for the main Black Woman's Hour. 
And uh, yes, thank you for tuning in. Thank you to our guests, Elaine. Thank you, Tony. Thank you as usual, Aisha. And uh, we will see you guys uh, next time. <laughs>